All right, everybody. Well, thank you all so much for coming to our first Sunday school in a year and a day. Is that about right? Because it was, well, I guess March 13th of last year was the shutdown. And so it's been a year and a week since we last had Sunday school. So thank you all for, for being back in a uh, socially distanced environment, I suppose, here in the gym. I just want to say real quick at the beginning here that uh, Ian, Zach, and Sean put an enormous amount of time into just trying to get this figured out. It may look simple to just plug in some microphones, but it, it has been incredibly time-consuming and challenging to get this working. Uh, if, if anything messes up, that is quite okay, but uh, it's just been a lot of effort. So I just want to say thank you, Zach, Sean, and uh, yeah, Sean and Ian. Thank you all for the time that you all have put into this, and this is just great. Uh, Greg and Fred are helping us out here on the first week. If you remember a year ago, some of you would have been here, uh, we had been working through Wayne Grudem's doctrine book, Bible Doctrine, and we had gotten to this chapter, which is on uh, uh, biblical manhood and womanhood. And it's just one chapter in the book, just one chapter. But we are going to spend, I mean, it's going to be, we're going to spend a lot of weeks on this one topic, because tell me if you agree. Uh, in the world that we live in today, uh, the issues of maleness and femaleness, gender, sexuality, marriage, um, all kinds of issues that are very touchy and important in our culture today are spinning around misunderstandings about what the Bible teaches on this topic. And so we, we don't feel embarrassed at all to spend extra time uh, working through this. And I don't even know how many weeks it will be, but probably more than you expect on this topic. So we're going to be going through a lot of different uh, aspects of it. We even plan to spend in a future Sunday uh, time talking about uh, singleness, uh, dating, engagement, marriage, all those kinds of topics as well in a future week. Um, another thing before we jump in is... We will not have Sunday school, so this is important. We will not have Sunday school next Sunday or on Easter. Okay, I'm going to try to announce that again, and we'll put that in the email. But we will not have Sunday school next week or three weeks from now, I suppose, is Easter, so on the 4th of April. So outside of those two skip Sundays, next Sunday and, and Easter, we plan to have this weekly uh, going forward uh, as, as the Lord sees fit. So with, with all that uh, in mind, uh, Greg, could you pray for us? And then we are going to be in Genesis 1 through 3 primarily today. If you want to go ahead and, and turn to Genesis 1, if you're wondering where that is, I'm sure someone nearby can point you to the first page of your Bible. And so we'll, we'll be there. And Greg, please, please pray for us. Father, we thank you for the blessing of this church, a church devoted to your word, uh, your word as the, the final authority and the final say on all matters of doctrine and life. And God, thank you for this opportunity to unpack your word for these few moments. Uh, please give Fred and myself and Mark an abundance of wisdom and insight and clarity to uh, accurately handle your word, to uh, faithfully handle the word of life. And God, we pray that it would prove uh, beneficial for all here God, that we would be better equipped to, to know what your word says about male and female and the, how controversial that is in our world today and how we can think about it and uh, speak it to those around us and give a defense, Lord, for what your word says. So God, work in our midst. May your Holy Spirit come and illuminate our hearts uh, that we might um, draw near to you 
and uh, be more like Christ and better able to faithfully serve Him because of these few moments. So we commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, Papa Fred, can you read for us uh, from Genesis chapter 1, can you read verses 26 to 31? Yes. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. The word of the Lord. One of the... Um, when, the when the world today hears what the Bible teaches about uh, manhood and womanhood, oftentimes several things happen. One is very often what the Bible really teaches gets distorted. It is not hard to take what people think the Bible teaches and run in a direction that is not biblical and distort and caricature what biblical manhood and womanhood is supposed to look like. And so we need to read carefully these chapters because these, this is sort of the paradigm, the blueprint at the beginning of the Bible to tell us so much about what is to come. When Jesus is asked, you remember this in, in Matthew 19 when Jesus is asked about marriage? And about divorce, his answer is to say, let's go back to the beginning. Let's go back to Adam and Eve to find this basic blueprint of how things are supposed to be. So the invitation today as we study some of this is to say, God made us, he knows what is best for us, and God is not trying to keep us from what's good for us as men or as women. God is inviting us to what is good for us, both as men and as women. So the world is gonna keep saying the Bible is, is um, going to be something that's gonna be degrading to men and women. And we're saying no, no, no. Properly understood, this is the best thing for men to be men, for women to be women, as scripture teaches, and for us to walk in obedience to, to what God has called us. So with verses 26 and 27, and let me, let me just kind of ask my panel here. This is fantastic, I love throwing to the panel. So um, what, what, these, these basic doctrines of the image of God, what, what is the significance of what we see in 26 and 27. What, what are some basic foundation blocks here? One, uh, very clearly, is, you know, and it's, this is obvious, it's going to, almost one of those, you hear it and you're like, well, duh, that's, you know, that's true, is the simple fact that God's the one doing this, and so God has the right to define us because he made us. Um, and so we are, if, you know, going with what Mark said, if we're going to enjoy uh, being who God made us to be and enjoy the life God made us to live, then we need to understand what God says about us and what God says about our life, about our relationships. And so God is the only one who can define that rightfully so. And that's what he's doing here. 
And so this is not just one perspective among many. This is the final perspective on manhood and womanhood, male and female, the purpose of humanity, and all that we're going to look at. And so in terms of authority, this is the highest authority. Um, every, everything that goes um, contrary to this is going contrary to God himself. So it's not just a matter of opinion. And I think this matters because the world we live in is what we call very pluralistic. You know, you have your truth, I have my truth, you have your opinion, I have my opinion. No, God's opinion is the one that settles it at the end of the day. His is the only one that ultimately matters. And so if we're going to be faithful to him, we need to accept and submit to what he actually says. Um, and there's, you know, we're not going to go into this right now, but the reason why we trust the Bible, there's more reasons than we can spend time talking about why this book is trustworthy. Um, so we're reading God's opinion, God's decisive, definitive word on who we are as human beings. And to go contrary to that is to rebel against God. I, uh, I figured that we would start somewhere around here as far as the image of God. And I just, has anybody seen Piper's new book on Providence? It's yay thick, <laughs> 700 plus pages. But I turned a few pages and uh, read what he had to say about creation and image. And if I may indulge you, uh, whatever else it means to be created in the image of God, this is, is very clear. The purpose of images is to image. Thus, when God created human beings in his image, he puts himself on display and commands that the earth be full of such images of himself. It is clear that God's goal in creation is to display God. That's pretty amazing. He just kind of sums it up because we could we could sit here and debate what is an image, what does it look like. What it, he says, an image is an image. It's supposed to look like God. It's supposed to be like God. Oh, that's good. And it, it's interesting that, again, in a world that will often mock what the Bible says about manhood and womanhood, I don't think that people realize in our Western society that the very premise that human beings should have rights and dignity is a biblical concept, not an evolutionary concept. So when you think about Darwin, you don't get any grounds for human dignity and inherent worth and inherent value that doesn't exist in Darwin. All you have is strength, might makes right, you know, uh, survival of the fittest, you, you trample on the weak, exploit people who are vulnerable, do whatever you can to get ahead. That's the, the, the so-called ethic of evolution, if there was such an ethic at all. We, though, believe that men and women are both made in the image of God. So the dignity that you have as a human being does not come because you're, you know, you share ancestors with, with apes, you know, somewhere back in the past. That's not where you get your dignity. Maybe you feel like there are members of your family who do have ape-like ancestry, but that, that is not true. Uh, we, we have our dignity rooted in God's image, and so if, if we're going to talk about human dignity, the Bible is the only answer in town that actually can ground human dignity and worth in, in this doctrine. So not just Men, not, not just women, but men and women are equally made uh, in the image of their creator. Why, why is this important? Well, we need to understand that each human being individually bears God's image. It's not like together you've got 50% in the, in the male, 50% in, you know, in female, and together they make the image of God. No, men and women together can, or individually are God's image apart from each other. Um, so every human being... Um, 
bears the stamp of the image of God, no matter how small, no matter how big, no matter how young, no matter how old, um, because men and women are the, the husband, the wife, the man, the woman, um, they are made in God's image. Every, every human that comes after them likewise bears the image of God. And so um, that hasn't changed. It doesn't change depending on if you're sick, if you're dependent on you know, insulin if you're a diabetic, if you're in a hospital bed dependent on life support for a season, um, the baby in the womb, just because it is dependent on its mother does not mean it is somehow less human because of that. By the very fact that you have the DNA that you have, you cannot be anything other than human and therefore you are in the image of God. Um, and I feel like there's more we could say on that. Fred? I... Would this be too weighty to read the, no, this read weight of glory? Yeah, yeah. This is what C.S. Lewis says in his weight of glory, and it's a little lengthy, but it's, it's certainly worth. Meanwhile, the cross comes before the crown, and tomorrow is a Monday morning. Uh, it is Monday morning. <laughs> a cleft has opened in the pitiless walls of the world, and we're invited to follow our great captain inside. The following him is, of course, the essential point. That being so, it may be asked, what practical use is there in the speculations which I've been indulging? I can think of at least one. It may be for each to think too much of our potential glory. Thereafter, it's hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. This is what you're saying. Uh, the load or the weight of the burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid on my back, a load so heavy that only hum humility can carry it and the backs of the proud will be broken. It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to one day may be a creature which, if you saw it now, would be strongly, you'd be strongly tempted to wor worship or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or another of these destinations. Hmm. Pretty powerful emphasis on the community and that we are all created, as Piper says, to glorify God, equally but separately and together. That's good. So if we can turn to Genesis 2, and just as we turn there, uh, the image of God does not disappear with the fall. With the fall of mankind, the image is marred, it's disfigured in a sense because of our sin, but James will even speak about how even you know, when you disparage your neighbor, you're, 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 you're cursing someone made in God's image. So the image of God still remains even with the corruption of the fall. In, in Genesis 2, uh, God creates Adam and Eve, and uh, one, of the, uh, one of the arguments you'll sometimes hear is the idea that uh, in marriage, Ephesians 5 and other passages talk about the husband being the head of the wife and the wife called to uh, submit to the husband, to follow and uh, to encourage the husband in his leadership of the, of the home and of the family. Some people will try to say that, yes, okay, that is taught in the New Testament, but it's really a result of the fall. G gender roles are a result of the fall. That's part of the, the curse, and we need to actually... Uh, get past that. We need to get beyond that, back to the garden before the fall where there were no gender roles at all. And uh, I just want to argue that that is not true 
biblically that gender roles are in the DNA of men and women from the very beginning before sin enters the world. So I, I want to I give some arguments, and we can talk about several aspects of this as we go. But I want to point out several things about the creation of Adam and Eve that indicates uh, the leadership of Adam in the, in the relationship with Eve. So uh, it, let me just, let's read a few verses here. Uh, look with me at verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God uh, made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. There the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Look down at verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it, and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man that he should be alone. I will make for him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to the, every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, he's the first word spoken by a human being in the whole Bible, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed." So before we get into the roles issue, I, I want to look at one thing first, and I want to hear from Greg and Fred on this. Verse 15 is crucial to understanding uh, the role of, uh, of a man or uh, our role in the world. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it, or you could translate it, work it and guard it, mm -hmm. uh, to create and cultivate. Uh, why are those two words, to work and keep, to create and cultivate. Why are those so at the essence of what it means to be a human being, especially to be a, a man in the world? What does that, what does that mean? Well, we, we tend to think when we think about the Garden of Eden, you know, working it and keeping it, I'm glad you mentioned the, the possible translation guard because, again, we, we think, you know, in a farm, uh, agricultural setting, um, you're working the ground, you know, you're, you're keeping it, you're tilling it, you're cultivating it. Um, but the, this language here, I think it's for, for keep it, is actually the same word that's used in Leviticus for the Levites when they are to work and keep the temple or the tabernacle, uh, they're to guard it. Um, and so Adam and, and Eve, too, are to, to live in the presence of God and guard the presence of God from anything unclean or unholy coming in. That's going to play into, you know, I don't think we're going we're gonna to get there I don't know how much we're going to get there, but it plays into the fact that this serpent comes in and the way he's speaking, he is speaking contrary to God. He's speaking against God, and that's an unclean, unholy thing to do. And Adam fails in his duty at that point to guard the dwelling place of God uh, from this unclean um, creature. And so, you know, Adam and Eve with the, we didn't read this in Genesis 1, we didn't spend uh, we didn't linger on there when it says be fruitful multiply fill the earth subdue it have dominion over it and all of that man was to as he subdued the earth literally expand the garden of eden out until eventually the whole world 
was the garden. The whole world was the dwelling place of God with man. Um, but this, in this probationary period where he is, um, he, he has this task basic to humanity is keep working that garden and guarding it. Um, and so, and again, we can develop this, but in, what's up, intrinsic to who we are is being in the presence of God, um, living in the presence of God, and expanding that dwelling place and, and that meeting place um, out to others. Um, and I think, I don't know if we think about that a lot uh, in terms of our humanity. We think of being fruitful and multiplying. You know, we think of filling the earth, subduing it. We think of, okay, we're going to, you know, have more gardens and with technology and all of that. But I think central to all that God has called us to be and do is to dwell and live in His presence and to guard that holy place, if you will, um, from any spot or stain or spoiling. And, and protect it. Yeah. Uh, that's why in the, at the end of three, he sends an angel to guard the way to the tree mm -hmm. of life so that man wouldn't go back and, and mm -hmm. live forever. Yeah. So, and, and we're still, we still have that um, covenant, that charge yeah. from God to protect, to guard, to keep. That's good. So those two words, work and keep, should be, should be pretty important to us today. Um, work is not a part of the curse. No. Work was cursed. <laughs> work became much more difficult. Can I get an amen? There's, you can feel the, can you not feel the effects of the fall in your weekly work you have to do? Hey, a file gets deleted. That's the fall right there. Okay, the file gets, <laughs> your paper you just finished just disappears. You know, I had a student trying to send me a paper. At least they say, I'm going to take their word for it, that they lost it on the computer. I don't know if that's true or not, but, you know, you had these moments where they disappear. And um, so let me just, Richard Phillips, uh, who's a uh, pastor, uh, he wrote a book called The Masculine Mandate. Now, I have not read the whole book. I've just started it this week, but it's really good. I've heard really good things about this book, The Masculine Mandate, uh, about biblical manhood. And he, he spends a lot of time developing this concept of work and keep. And uh, here's what he says about these two words, work. To work is to labor to make things grow. In subsequent chapters, he says, I will discuss work in terms of nurturing, tending, building up, guiding, and ruling. So nurturing, tending, building up, guiding, ruling. To keep is to protect and to sustain progress already achieved. Later, I will speak of it as guarding, keeping safe, watching over, caring for, maintaining. So this may be, uh, there's a lot of different applications, but it may, may be, uh, you know, you start a business and, you know, you create something and then you need to cultivate it. You need to, you need to keep up with it. You need to make sure that things continue to run as they are. You have a family, perhaps. If you, if you have a family, you want to make sure that as you have children that you then cultivate those lives. You love those lives. You tend to them. Uh, and the gardening metaphor applies to all kinds of things. You don't just plant and walk away. If a gardener plants and walks away, what, what grows up? Weeds. Weeds grow so much better than the beautiful plants. You know, that's also the curse, right? The thorns that infest the ground. And so we see the curse all around us. Work takes a lot of effort. And to, for things to be cultivated appropriately, we've got to put in all kinds of effort, not just to start something, but to cultivate something once it has begun. And so that's, that's so significant for life, that we, we start things, but then we keep up with them and cultivate them. Some people, uh, and this could be a, a male tendency, some people have this tendency of sort of like, the victory is to start something. And once it's started, I can just sort of move on to something else and just let the weeds fester in that earlier thing. But that, that's not what God would have us to do. Create, cultivate, work, keep, 
begin something and then guard and, and have the upkeep continue around with that. And I think the gardening metaphor is a wonderful picture of that, that kind of thing that God has called us to. So if, if I may continue here, um, let me start pointing out some evidences of Adam's leadership in the marriage even before the fall. I'm going to list, I've got maybe eight things here. I'll just kind of list through these. This one may not seem significant, but the New Testament clearly, at least on two occasions, mentions this. Adam was created before Eve. Could God have created Eve first? Yes. Could He have created them simultaneously? Yes, but God did not do that. He created Adam first in verse 7 of chapter 2, and then later, after giving Adam the job, He then later creates Eve as a helper fit for Him. So number two, so number one, Adam was created first. Number two, Eve was created for Adam to, as a helper for him. 1 Corinthians 11.9 repeats this. Uh, number three, Eve was created from Adam. Adam was not created from Eve. That's in verse 22. So you remember, God creates Adam out of the dust. That's just fitting for a man, just created out of the dirt. But then Eve, he fashions from the rib of Adam while he's in a deep sleep and brings, uh, Adam, brings Eve to Adam. Number four, Adam was charged to name the animals in verse 19 before Eve is even on the scene yet, which is a kind of authority or dominion, naming the animals. Number five, Adam names Eve twice. He names Eve woman first in chapter 2, then he names her Eve in chapter 3 because she is the mother of all living. So just like parents naming a child shows a recognition of authority, does that mean a child is less valuable than the parent? No. Uh, it, it's not about value. We're all made in the image of God. But when a parent names a child, it shows a position of, of some kind of authority. Well, similarly, not identically, but similarly, Adam names Eve twice. He names woman and he names Eve, uh, which shows a position of leadership in the relationship. Number six, uh, Adam was given the commands not to eat from the forbidden fruit before Eve was created. In other words, God instructs Adam, and who's supposed to instruct Eve? Adam is. God, God instructs Adam, and then Adam is, is meant to instruct Eve and to lead Eve in that. And I want to hear from you guys in a second. N number eight, this one comes out really clearly in the New Testament, but God names humanity Adam. Verse, this is chapter 1, verse 20. Six, God said, let us make man, Adam, in our image and after our likeness. Verse 27, so God made man, Adam, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created him. The point here is not that men are better than women or more important or more valuable than women. The point is here, Adam and Eve are equally made in the image of God, but they don't have the same role. And God has called Adam to be the leader in this relationship. So he can call both Adam and Eve. God can call both male and female Adam, man. Uh, and so the, the purpose there is showing Adam's position of leadership. And the New Testament draws this out so clearly in Romans 5, verses 12 to 21. Who does God blame for the fall? He blames Adam, even though Eve ate the fruit first technically. God blames Adam. Adam was our representative in, in, in the garden, and Jesus is the true and last Adam, according to Romans 5. And so that's, that's an eighth reason. So some thoughts on these various issues here. Well, that's interesting that uh, Adam, is in, in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, says, in Adam all die. And yet, Eve, Adam blamed Eve for his sin. The woman you gave me caused me to do it. And uh, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, in Adam all die. He, he 
holds Adam responsible and accountable for sin, for not teaching his wife, not leading his wife. So you got that, that, that headship, that leadership, and there was a long period of time. For example, you mentioned the naming. Adam named all the animals. I'm sure as he had this row of animals lined up coming, he was looking for somebody that was kind of like him, and there was no, nothing found. And, and, and he, was, he needed a helper. He needed someone like himself, and, and God did that. So God ultimately provided. But you're right, in the New Testament, it's clear that this was Adam's responsibility. And, and Christ is the new Adam. Mm-hmm. Christ is in redemption. See, it's so great that we're in Genesis. You can, we can teach the whole Bible this afternoon just from these one, first three chapters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, 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 and we got to have the gospel in it, too. Mm-hmm. The, the gospel is presented clearly that, that uh, Christ's heel will be bruised, but Satan's head would be crushed in the end. So um, it, it is, this is a great scenario to, just to begin with. Well, just a, a, a kind of an interesting question. Do any of you, when you hear man or mankind, do you have a kind of a knee-jerk response to that? thinking, nah, we probably need to say humanity or something like that. Um, I know I do, um, and I'm not saying that's a good thing. That's actually not a good thing. Um, but I think part of that is we have been so conditioned by our culture that even when the Bible speaks plainly, we almost feel like, well, let's, yeah, let's not, we don't have to do it quite the way the Bible says. Um, but if the Bible, this, this gets to the issue of the sufficiency of Scripture and the language of Scripture being sufficient. Not just the concepts, but the language in which those concepts are communicated. God gives us a generic term for humanity, which is man. Okay? The word man is an offensive term to the world today. It's, an, it's, a, it's a term of oppression um, and stuff like that to so many people, just the word man. And so a lot of Christians feel like, well, let's pick a different word because that word's not offensive. But if the Bible uses the word we need to use the word. If the Bible describes humanity that way, then we need to describe humanity the way the Bible does. Um, because otherwise, we're not giving a clear presentation of God's word to the world around us. God didn't say just humanity and then men and women. He said man and then man and woman. And again, if, if we have any kind of trouble with that, that's when we need to do some searching in our own hearts and, and maybe confess some sin and conformity to the world because that's a worldly type of response when we think, oh, wait a minute, that, that, people might not like the way it says that, so let's not talk. Let's find a more generic term that's not offensive. But that's the problem with our age is it seeks to not offend anyone while forsaking truth. And it's better to stay true to the truth. And if people get upset at that, then that's just an indication that their hearts are in the wrong place and that their focus is completely off. But if the Bible uses a term like, like Mark was saying, um, and Scripture clearly teaches, then that's what we need to use. That's good. And w- really important to say here, and this quote is not original with myself, but really important to say, 
one of the reasons why male headship, uh, there's, there's multiple reasons. One reason male headship can seem so offensive is because a lot of men have failed to lead well with humility, with sacrificial love. Um, Jesus says, you know, with the Gentiles, they have authority and they lord it over you, but it will not be so among you. The greatest among you will be the servant of all. So the, the, this idea of being compassionate, loving, thoughtful, gracious, and, and servant leadership, that, that's, that's important. Now, servant leadership doesn't mean you're not leading. Right, so it's, it's not just that you—it's you, not that you only lead by modeling service. You are really leading, but you're also leading humbly with a with a servant disposition of heart. And so, headship is not a right to power; it is a burden of responsibility. It's not a right to power. I'm not claiming my rights. Oh, I'm—you know—you can think of all the caricatures of what a man may say to his wife that's that's not loving and not gracious. Uh, you know, it kind of thump. Vody Bakum talks about thumping the chest. You know, I, I'm the man. You do what I say. That's not anywhere in the Bible in that kind of demeanor. This is not a right of power. This is a burden of responsibility to lovingly care for those that the Lord has called you to to lead. And. Submission here should be a wife uh, in a marriage situation. Uh, submission should be a wife who is thrilled when her husband is leading well. Uh, she, she loves it when her husband takes the initiative. When the husband says, let's do this or let's think about this for our family, the wife comes along and loves to support that and nurture that with her intelligence and creativity and gifts. She wants to support his, his leadership and initiative. And when the husband is not leading well, just maybe being passive, the wife then is on her knees praying to the Lord to move on his heart and, and asking the Lord to, to be at work in her husband's life and to, and to love him well. And uh, John Piper has done a lot of work in this area for decades, but here, here are two, this is probably too long to write down, but here are two definitions, one for a biblical manhood and biblical womanhood. At the heart of mature masculinity is a sense of benevolent responsibility, so loving responsibility, to lead, provide for, and protect women in ways appropriate to a man's differing relationships. That's long. Say that again. At the heart of mature masculinity is a sense of benevolent responsibility to lead, provide for, and protect women in ways appropriate to a man's differing relationships. And that will be seen most clearly in a marriage. Number two, at the heart of mature femininity is a freeing, a freeing disposition to affirm, receive, and nurture strength and leadership from worthy men in ways appropriate to a woman's differing relationships. Let me say that again. At the heart of mature femininity, I can't even say that, is a freeing disposition to affirm, receive, and nurture strength and leadership from worthy men in ways appropriate to a woman's differing uh, relationships. And you'll see that most clearly in Ephesians 5, where husbands are to love their wives as who? Christ loved the church. So do, do we lead Christ in the relationship? I hope that's not how we pray. Like, Lord, here, let me tell you what's what. <laughs> let me lead you around in your sovereignty. No, 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 no. We, we, we can ask for things from the Lord, but we are submitting ourselves to the Lord's good and gracious will for our good. Jesus leads us. Is Jesus an abusive, chauvinistic, domineering, I don't care about you kind of husband? No, he, he is a nail-pierced, crown of thorns wearing, back bloodied, crucified for our sins kind of leader. Uh, he gets down and washes our feet at the very moment when Judas is about to betray, Jesus is washing his feet. I mean, th this is the kind of love that Jesus is displaying in his leadership. And so uh, Jesus' leadership is that kind of leader. Husbands and future husbands in the room, and this is challenging to all of us, we are to love our family and lead our family with that kind 
of love and that kind of leadership. And that is a challenge to every, everyone, all, all men. And then wives are called to joyfully support and nurture the leadership of their husbands. Remember, God gave the job to Adam, and then He created Eve as, a, as someone fit for Him to help Adam in the job that God had given him. And so she is called to come along on His side. You know, the rib was taken from His side. She comes along on His side in order to nurture and help cultivate what Adam has been called by the Lord to do with his life. And um, yeah, so some thoughts on this. Mark, would you agree that those two definitions that you read of manhood and womanhood, that's a, that's a result of redemption? And, and we can't do that in, in and of ourselves. But I'll read you a quote from Grudem on page um, 206. The redemption of Christ is aimed at removing the results of sin and of the fall in every way. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil from 1 John 3.8. So we've been made new creations in Christ. And, and we, if we walk in the Spirit, we have the ability to do to perform the, those definitions that you just just read, and and so that's the good news. The the the, the curses that, that that came as a result of sin in chapter three, these these go away or are are redeemed by the blood of the cross, and and we can now and and both both as women and men perform these duties as. Piper there just described. So that's good news. I think it's important to remember too. I mean, we kind of hinted at it, but this isn't easy. No. Like the calling for, for men to be men, women to be women, because of the fall, because of sin, we're going to find in ourselves a reluctance, a resistance, um, a lack of desire, um, a laziness in terms of pursuing what God says. And, you know, it's something we progress in, we can get better at, but we should never think that we have to lay, put our shield down, put our weapons away in this battle to be what God's called us to be. It's, it's a daily fight um, for men to be the leaders that we're supposed to be the way God says, for women to fulfill their call. It's going to be hard, and, and sometimes we have to take the approach um, I mean, this, actually, all the time, this needs to be in the background. When Jesus talked about deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me, he's like, when you deny yourself, it's like you're disassociating yourself from yourself. So it's like we're going to have to make the conscious decision to, when we recognize what God has called us to do and we don't find the desire, the corresponding desire, as strong as it needs to be to go along with that, we're going to have to say, okay. And we're going to have to, if you do it out loud, that's fine. Sometimes if nobody's around, I talk out loud sometimes. Um, sometimes I need to hear it, but I have to, to tell myself, okay, this is what God's word says. It doesn't matter how you feel. It doesn't matter right now what you want. God's word is right. God's word is true. He's promised help to be and do what he's called me to. And therefore, whether I'm feeling it right now, whether um, I'm in the, the zone or I got my mojo for it, I'm still going to, I'm going to step out. I'm going to start doing what I know scripture clearly says. Um, and God has, and it's just amazing how when we walk in that path of obedience to the word of God, God brings renewal, God brings strength. And the thing that we didn't want to do, the thing we were reluctant to do, all of a sudden we find our hearts renewed to desire it and our, our will to do it strengthened. And we find an energy and we find 
um, a zeal that wouldn't have been there otherwise. But it's not like we just sit back and say, well, I don't feel it, therefore I'm not going to do it. No, God says, I will empower you in the doing. So we get up and start doing, trusting that God's going to give us what we need in the moment. Oh, that's very good. And uh, just, uh, just to summarize, we've got just a few minutes left. We, we know Genesis 3, probably the fall. Just, let me just hit a couple important points. The first person to undermine God's calling on the genders, the first one to undermine God's gender roles is not Adam or Eve. It's the serpent. The serpent does not come and address Adam as the leader. He doesn't come and address the couple as a, as the, together. He comes and addresses Eve, and he, Satan is trying to do exactly the opposite of what God did. God puts Adam in the position of leading in the relationship, and serpent comes and says, I don't, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bypass the leader. I'm going to go speak to Eve. And so Satan flips the gender roles upside down and puts Eve in the position, really, of, of, of leading. And then Adam, remember, she eats the fruit, and she gives some to her husband who was with, with her. So Adam is doing what every son of Adam has struggled with, like me, since Adam, which is being passive and lazy. So Adam is standing right next to his wife while his wife is talking to the devil, okay? The devil is talking to his wife. What is Adam doing? Uh, I, he's like, he's scrolling, I think, is what he was doing. I don't know what he, I think he had, he's just Instagram or something. I don't know. But she, she, she's talking to Satan. He's just chilling right next to her. And um, his failure, they really fell together. Adam fails to lead in that moment. Adam should have been like, I'm here to guard the garden. You're an unclean snake. Get out of here. He should have gotten, you know, the shovel and taken the snake out back. Okay, that's what he should have done. Okay, that would have been the appropriate thing to do. But instead, Adam just sits there passively while his wife is talking to the devil and allows his wife to be deceived and then follows his wife into sin. She took some and gave it to him and he ate. So he followed her leadership into sin. And instead of being the leader he should have been, he failed miserably. And every man since Adam struggles with passivity in some way or another, spiritually in every kind of way. I mean, I can just, I, I can make you laugh at ways in which I have failed so many times uh, with my own family to lead the way I should. And here's, here's something significant. Look at verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, the man and said to him, where are you? And if you have a footnote, the Hebrew word you right there is singular, not plural. So here's another indication that Adam was called to be the leader. Who ate the fruit first? Eve. Who does God call to account first? Adam by himself. Why? Because Adam bore primary responsibility for the spiritual well-being of his marriage. That, that does not mean that the wife can be guiltless. That's not what I'm saying. But the initiative and that, that, that leadership role lands on the husband in a way that is unique in the husband and wife relationship. When God knocks on the door and there's a trouble at home, if the wife opens the door, God says, hello, I would like to speak to the man of the house first. And that, that, is, that is a fearful thing for a husband, not something to be treated as an issue of, of a right. That, that, that is a burden of responsibility that God… And then, as we just heard, Adam blames who? Eve. Now, that sound, it sounds almost kind of funny to us, you know, like she made me do it, and he's like the, she's like the snake made me do it. Not funny. You know what the consequence was for eating the fruit? In the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. die. Adam just went from being passive one moment letting his wife be deceived by Satan. He's being completely passive. A second later, Adam's trying to let Eve be killed so he doesn't have to. That's a kind of, an, a kind of, a kind of domineering, 
chauvinistic sort of evil uh, male leadership. So do you see the two extreme abuses of male leadership? One would be by being passive, one by being domineering. And in the middle here is no. You know what? You know, a- Adam should have said, take me instead of her, is what he should have said, which is what the last Adam says, right? The last Adam, Jesus shows up and says, I will take, I will take responsibility for, for what has happened here in, instead of my wife. So as, as we progress further into these things, these are some basic frameworks to lay out. Any last thought here before we, before we wrap up? I mean, going off what you said, the last Adam, you know, Christ taking the responsibility, even before that, um, when the serpent is coming, Adam, sh- Adam should have gotten in the way and been willing to face whatever the serpent would throw at him in order to protect his bride. Um, you know, he failed to do that. He didn't step in between. And like what you were saying, in, in a slightly different way, Jesus, as the second Adam, he got in between us. Like, he got in between us and Satan. He got in between us and death. And he laid down his own life um, in place of us. Um, even though we were the ones flirting with sin, the ones, you know, straying from God, he took the penalty for that um, for us. Yeah, he took the responsibility um, as the new Adam that, that we abdicated and, uh, and stepped up. I, I do want to, uh, in the back of your books, uh, there's an addendum on the Chicago um, uh, statement inerrant, statement of in, biblical inerrancy. Uh, if you have a chance before the next session, read that because I, we don't have time to talk about it now, but the world certainly differs from us, but even Christianity differs from our interpretation of the scripture. And that conference was an, an attempt to, um, uh, to define what we need by biblical inerrancy. And it's That's important good. to know. So. Can you pray for us, Fred? Yes, yeah, sure. Father, thank you that, uh, that we have begun this session in Genesis 1, 2, 3. And uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And as I was looking around today, the, you see the, the hints of spring everywhere. The birds are out. The trees are starting to, to bloom. And there's pollen out almost. And, and you still have given us a beautiful creation to enjoy. And even though uh, uh, man sinned, we sinned, uh, and there was the fall, you promised redemption. The gospel is in chapter 3. And one day you're going to come back and make all of this right. And, and we just, in, in the meantime, help us to uh, look to the word, look to your spirit to embolden us to lead as men, to, uh, to apply the gospel to our hearts and our lives and to women, to, to understand that there is equality in the gospel, that there, you're not a subordinate member of, of uh, this family of God. You're created in the image of God just like men, just like women are. And, and, and I'm thankful that this, this Grudem spends a lot of time in this chapter uh, defining that and what it looks like and, and he always refers to scripture so I'm looking forward and I'm excited for the days ahead in Jesus name, Amen Amen, and for those who did not hear we do not have Sunday school next Sunday no Sunday school next Sunday or on Easter so just keep that in mind, no Sunday school next Sunday or on Easter, thank you all for coming and we got about 12 minutes till the service starts